Welcome to Pickaxe and Roll, brought to you by Superbook Sports. I'm your host, Ryan Blackburn, at NBA Blackburn on Twitter. Part of the Mile High Sports Podcast Network, and I'm excited to kind of do a compilation episode of a variety of topics here. We've got a lot of things to talk about. It's funny, I was going to talk about the Central Division today, and then lo and behold, the Cleveland Cavaliers trade for Donovan Mitchell making that discussion a whole heck of a lot more interesting because it was just going to be basically Milwaukee and everybody else. Now we get to talk about Cleveland. Now we get to talk about a very interesting team. But we're also going to talk about Eurobasket. I debated about doing this podcast uh, tomorrow or tonight, uh, tomorrow being Friday. I'm recording this on Thursday night before Serbia plays so if you see the results and then listen to this podcast, just know that the reason why I haven't covered that game is because I'm talking about the preview prior to. So we're going to talk about Eurobasket, and then we're going to talk about Michael Porter Jr. If you didn't see, I wrote an article on MileHighSports.com on Michael Porter Jr. And just, I think what Nuggets fans can have a healthy expectation for as he tries to come back this year, he's healthy. He's ready to go, and it it seems like he's posting a lot of clips, and he's ready and 100% cleared at this point, and he's going to give it a go for next season. And Nuggets fans, I'm sure, are pretty excited but also pretty nervous about that situation, so we're going to expand a little bit more on that. But first, let's hit on the Central Division. As you know, I've been doing these podcasts, going around to different divisions, talking about each of these teams. I'm going to compress this into one segment for today, probably about 15 minutes or so. But let's talk about the teams, their individual moves. You've got Cleveland, you've got Chicago, you've got Detroit, Indiana, and Milwaukee. Let's start with Cleveland. Alphabetical order here. They just made one of the most surprising moves of the offseason, the other being the other trade involving a Utah Jazz star, where you have Rudy Gobert going to Minnesota. Donovan Mitchell goes to Cleveland for a package that wasn't that massive. It was Larry Markkinen, uh, Ochai Baji, and Colin Sexton, along with th- three first-round picks and two pick swaps. It makes a lot of sense for both teams, I think, for, for this particular move. For Cleveland, they get a star. I don't think that anybody's arguing that Donovan Mitchell is a star at this point in time. And now you add him to a group that already had two young all-stars playing in Cleveland and Darius Garland and Jared Allen. And they also have maybe their highest profile player is Evan Mobley, who looks like Anthony Davis and could potentially develop into something like that. And now he has a great pick and roll partner, a great young guard that he can also be a duo with. And I just really like what Cleveland has put together. They have a lot of creative lineups that they can go to now. They're going to start all four of those guys, Mitchell, Garland, Mobley, Allen, and they'll probably start Isaac Okoro or Karis LeVert, I would guess. That's definitely their weakest position. I'm not a big Karis LeVert fan. I don't think that he's that good. But if Isaac Okoro develops into somebody that is a strong defender on the wing, and can at least hit some outside shots, they have a case to win this division. Not just like get into the playoffs. They could actually beat out Milwaukee in terms of the number of wins they accrue. That's incredible. That's like a crazy place from where Cleveland lost LeBron James to the Los Angeles Lakers where he walks in free agency after basically exhausting every asset that they had 
The one asset that they didn't have or that they didn't let go of was the eighth overall pick in that 2018 draft, which turned out to be Colin Sexton. And so the Cavs, they get to cash in that piece to get the next superstar for them. I think that's really interesting. They also got Ricky Rubio, who is recovering from an ACL tear that I believe he sustained in January, if I'm not mistaken. So he is going to be on the shelf, at least for a little bit. But in the meantime, they can go to some interesting lineups where Mitchell and Mobley is the duo, or Allen and Garland is the duo, or you could flip-flop those, or you could play Kevin Love in there somewhere. There's a lot of opportunity for them to be really good. Then you've got Chicago, Andre Drummond, Goran Dragic, Dale and Terry. Those are the three names that they added, at least the, the highest profile names. They still have Lonzo Ball and Alex Caruso, who they got last year. Zach Levine, DeMar DeRozan, those are the two all-stars that they have. They have Nikola Vucevic, who probably has a bit of a bounce back year after a really down shooting season last year, but he's still on the downside of his career. Vucevic was drafted, I believe, in 2011, 2012, one of those two years. So he's been in the league for a long time, and He's been doing this thing for a while, and I don't expect him to continue at the level that he had been with Orlando, and he's definitely been worse in Chicago. So we're going to have to see what that team ultimately becomes. Before they got the injury concerns, they were playing some good defense with Alex Caruso, with Lonzo Ball. They had Ayo Dusumu also on that team, who was a very good rookie, should project to be a pretty good sophomore as well. And then they drafted Dale and Terry, who I liked in the draft and makes a lot of sense for them as kind of a Alonzo Ball, Ayo Dusumu approximated sometimes. But overall, I just don't think that they have the star power to really compete with even Cleveland at this point. Milwaukee is a different category entirely, but Cleveland, I think, now elevates themselves firmly over Chicago in the regular season and in the playoffs. So I think that's fascinating the way that this has gone. Chicago made some big swings last offseason, and I just don't think it's worked out that well. And you've got Detroit, who they are firmly in a rebuild. They are not kidding themselves with that. They drafted Jaden Ivey, traded for Jalen Duran in this last draft to add as young prospects to Cade Cunningham, Sadiq Bey, Isaiah Stewart. They've got a good thing going. They also acquired uh, some veterans. They already waived Kemba Walker, if I'm not mistaken. But in that trade that sent uh, Mark Williams, I'm pretty sure, to Charlotte, they basically rerouted a bunch of picks and some veterans in order to clear space for to sign Jalen Brunson. These are the Knicks. Some of those veterans ended up in Detroit, where you've got guys like Nerlens Noel and, gosh, there was one more guy who I can't really think of, but... Some of those guys will be helpful. Some of those guys will not. The biggest point is that they're going to play each of those young guys as many minutes as they possibly can. And I do believe in Cade Cunningham. I think that he's one of those next guys who at six foot eight with the passing that he has and the, the overall utility in his game, he can be used in so many different ways. And that's great for a team like Detroit because they have a lot of players that you don't necessarily know how they're going to fit together. So if one of them pops, Cade will be able to adapt to that. Whether it's Jaden Ivey, Jalen Duran, Sadiq Bey, who knows. 
but they have a really good chance to be good down the line, just not good now. And then Indiana, they signed DeAndre Ayton to an offer sheet that was then matched immediately. And other than trading Malcolm Brogdon for Aaron Neesmith and Daniel Tice, they drafted Benedict Matherin at sixth overall. That's basically it. That's basically all that they've done. Uh, They could still move Miles Turner, could still move Buddy Heald. And I actually believe that that's probably going to happen, whether it happens for Russell Westbrook, like has been reported. I'm not sure. But if they take those guys into the season, you've got Tyrese Halliburton, Buddy Heald, Miles Turner, and Chris Duarte. I don't know about that. I just think it's it seems pretty uh, pretty horrible in terms of actually committing to a rebuild or not. Now, Indiana has been notorious for not really trying to rebuild. What they really do is they try to be competitive so that they can continue selling tickets. That's just what they've done in Indiana for a long time. But we'll see. Maybe Ben Matherin plays. Maybe he does a lot. Maybe he's the the starter that they need next to Halliburton. And those guys fit really well as a star duo going forward. I just think that it's going to take some time for that. They're going to be bad. And then you've got Milwaukee. Band back together. They brought back Wes Matthews, Bobby Portis. They still have Giannis, Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday. Uh, They also have... Uh, Brooke Lopez, they have Grayson Allen, who's that's not necessarily to brag about, but they do have him. They keep Pat Connaughton. They've got a variety of players. Uh, nothing major that I think you really have to uh, write home about. They did draft Marjan Bochamp, who I like. They signed Joe Ingles, though he did sustain a torn ACL as well. I think that was in February, if I'm not mistaken. So he's probably out for a while still. But they have this veteran group that they probably could have gone to the finals last year had Chris Middleton not gone down. Drew and Chris Middleton, they are getting older, though. Uh, Those guys are on the other side of their 30s. Chris Middleton's going to turn 32 this year. I'm pretty sure Drew Holiday's going to turn 33, maybe 34. So those guys, as they continue to age like that, Giannis can only carry the load so much. He's going to have to have others that can create their own offense that can take some pressure off of him. They're still the best team in the division, but it would not surprise me if the Cavs really pushed them this year. Like, I still have Giannis winning MVP. That's that's what I predicted in my last major podcast uh, about the, the entire league. I still think that they can push for 60 wins because they do feel like a wins connoisseur uh, where you have a formula that works, Brooke Lopez only played like 19 games in the regular season last year. So if you get like 60 from him, then you're doing much better. Bobby Portis goes back to the bench in a role that he excelled in before. He's not starting as he was for the majority of this last year. And the thing just fits a little bit better together. Now we'll see if that actually happens. Uh, but I do like the Cavs. They are young. They are upcoming. Evan Mobley still has plenty of room to grow. And I still think that Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland and those kinds of players can reach new heights as they continue to learn the nuances of each other's games. Jared Allen, maybe he pushes for a Defensive Player of the Year award. There's a lot to like about that team. I'm really excited for them. Chicago, they're in a tier of meh. 
Not really sure what to think about them until they stay healthy. They finished in the seven seed last year, or maybe it was the six seed. One of the two, I think it was the six seed actually. And there was a time where they were in first with DeMar DeRozan kind of putting them on his back, but DeMar is getting older too. And Zach Levine, though he should still be firmly in his prime, I'm a little bit worried about him. He, he definitely didn't look the part at times last year. And I do think that he was dealing with some injuries too. That's a lot of guys that are dealing with injuries that are pretty injury prone in Chicago. And you hope that other guys like Dusumu and, uh, shit, I don't know, uh, Goran Dragic, who they, they signed, maybe those guys can step up. I'd be a little bit skeptical. They do have Andre Drummond, so maybe he's a better fit at times than Nikola Vucevic. I just don't think their top-end talent is good enough to be in the playoff picture. Now, which team has the brightest future? It's probably the Cavs now. Uh, It was Detroit with Cade and Jaden Ivey. I do believe in that duo. I think that they have plenty of star power in Detroit, and they're going to slow play it kind of like Denver did. Cade is somebody that Nuggets fans can definitely say, look, he's a floor raiser. He is somebody who gives the team an actual future that they can build around. They'll just need to add some big pieces around him in order to get over the top. But Cade, to me, is he strikes me as a floor raiser for sure. Now, which team has the best chance to play the Nuggets in the finals if the Nuggets were to make it? Still think it's obviously the Bucks, but the Cavs are fascinating. I would pick Denver over the Bucks. The Cavs would be interesting just because there are some interesting matchups there. Murray would have to defend one of Garland or uh, Mitchell pretty consistently. I'm not sure you want him to have to do that, though he would have to. But Evan Mobley would probably have to defend Michael Porter Jr. And Jokic gets guarded by Jared Allen, who's done a pretty good job on him in the past. But it would still be very interesting. You've got that two big setup that a lot of teams have gone to against Jokic that Jokic has struggled with before. So I'm really curious to see what that matchup will look like in this upcoming season. But either way, that's a fun team. You like it when teams get fun. It's just much more enjoyable and entertaining. Really looking forward to seeing how this division pans out. Let's take a break. When we come back, we are going to discuss Eurobasket, preview that a little bit. But first, folks, I'm doing my first fantasy draft on Saturday night. I have the first overall pick. I plan on taking Christian McCaffrey. Lots of people are going to laugh at me about that because they're just going to just going to say, oh, he's going to get injured. But I firmly believe in Christian McCaffrey. I believe in him. And if you want to make certain bets on football, football is back. There's no way that you're more excited than the people over at Superbook Sports. Superbook is bringing Vegas-style wagering to the palm of your hands. And now they will match 100% of your first bet with them up to $1,000, no matter if the bet wins or loses. You don't have to be at the stadium to enjoy football this fall. Just visit Superbook.com or download the Superbook Colorado app right now and start getting in on all of the action. Visit Superbook.com for terms and conditions. Gambling problem call 1-800-522-4700.
pickaxe to roll. Ryan Blackburn here. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Appreciate all the love and support on the program, as always. Now let's get into Eurobasket, where it's already started. The first set of games was today. Slovenia played Lithuania. They beat them. Vlako looked great. Serbia is in Group B, which is pretty stacked. Or, or not Slo- not Serbia. Slovenia is in Group B, which is pretty stacked. And they're going to have trouble getting out of that group. But they're probably still the best team in that group anyway, so it's not going to matter. Eurobasket is a fun competition. You've got a lot of teams, four groups, six teams per group. You've got 24 teams total. Each team plays the other teams in their group once in pool play. And so you've got six teams per group, so that's five pool play games. And they do those in seven days. Five games in seven days is pretty tough, so will be interesting to see what that looks like. But they have an elimination bracket after that. You get seeded based off of your pool play, and then you get into bracket play with 16 teams, four rounds. It's already started, as I mentioned. You had Slovenia beat Lithuania. Flacco had 11 points. Uh, they probably should have fed him the ball a little bit more. He was hitting every shot that he took, and he had a couple interesting blocks too. Really interested to see whether that translates to NBA. Slovenia is probably the best team in that group, but other teams did play. Spain and Wancho, they beat Bulgaria pretty badly today. Yusuf Nurkic and Zanin Musa for Bosnia, they took down Hungary today in a win. Turkey beat Montenegro. Belgium beat Georgia. And then Germany upset France. France, I think, is one of the main competitors for the actual cup, for, or for Eurobasket, the championship. And Germany, they're at one tier below that, but Germany still has the talent to do it. And they they clearly upset France. Gobert looked pretty bad. There was a clip that went around today of him trying to post up Dennis Schroeder. And he airmailed a, a shot. Like it hit the backboard from straight on, basically. And then missed the rim. It was horrible. I, I, I haven't seen anything like that from an actual all-star caliber player because he just doesn't have an offensive game, which is pretty funny to watch. But now let's talk about Serbia. Serbia is playing in Group D with Netherlands, Finland, Poland, Czech Republic, and Israel. You've got some NBA talent on those teams. I know you've got Larry Markkinen. Uh, you've got some guys for the Czech Republic. You've got Denny Avdia with Israel. None of those really compare to Serbia, though. Serbia, obviously, when you have Joker... When you have a variety of other NBA talents, you're going to get some lopsided matchups. And this is definitely a lopsided matchup to start. Serbia plays the Netherlands to start off this tournament. And that is going to be very uh, much a bloodbath, which is one of the reasons why I didn't really feel like recording this podcast after that game. Joker, though, he's in line for a massive tournament. You've got these groups You've got these teams where it's not the strongest competition. Turkey was definitely better than all of these teams, and Greece was certainly better than all of these teams. But you're going to have to get through the group. The good news is you don't have to finish first in your group in order to advance, so Serbia does have a little bit of a cushion. But they're probably going to finish first in the bracket anyway because that's just the kind of talent that they have. Pool play is very forgiving. You only need to finish in the top four in your group. 
But the bracket play is really where it sorts out, where teams, they'll, based off of how they finish in that pool play, are going to be seeded. If Serbia finishes first in Group D, they will play the fourth place team in Group C, which would be one of Greece, Estonia, Ukraine, Great Britain, Italy, or Croatia. Now, you're probably getting Ukraine or Great Britain if I had to guess, but it's anybody's guess at this point. Whoever Serbia plays, they're just going to have to play whoever's in front of them. They're going to have to win. That's a single elimination game. So it's one of the things that makes this tournament so interesting is you've got the NBA talent now and you've got the EuroLeague talent that really elevates this thing to another level. But you've got some real fanfare behind it because three of the best players in the world, maybe the top three, are Giannis Antetokounmpo, Luka Doncic, and Nikola Jokic. All three of those guys are on strong teams. They're strong teams for a reason because they are leading them. And you've never seen, or the NBA world really has never seen three pillars of the game on these international squads before. So I'm glad that ESPN Plus is broadcasting these. I'm glad that they are sharing them with the world because to me, it does seem like a really good thing to grow the game of basketball and to really showcase the NBA stars that are playing in this thing. There's a lot of good players. Vlako Cherchar, one of the 500 best players in the world or something like that, he's in this game, or he's in this tournament, and he helped Slovenia make a massive win today. He was one of their best players. It was pretty clear, despite the fact that Luka is always going to be the guy who gets the credit. They probably don't win that game if Vlako Cherchar does not have as good of a game as he did. That's crazy to say. But there's a lot of NBA talent in this thing. And it can really shape how a tournament like this can go. It's one of the reasons why all three of Serbia, Greece, Slovenia are projected to go very far in this thing. All three of those teams, I think, have even odds. Maybe Serbia is a little bit of a favorite uh, to win the entire thing. And each of those guys has MVP odds as well. But it's going to be really interesting to see how this thing evolves, how this pool play plays out. And if you can get a bracket where Serbia is on one side of it and Greece or Slovenia is on the other side, it would be really fun to watch those matchups in the semifinal or the championship to see if Serbia can really compete for this thing. It's clearly very important to the people of Serbia, but also to Jokic. He's wanted to participate in these competitions before. I think it's going to be a lot of fun to root for him in these games. I know I already am. I was getting behind Vlatko in the Slovenia game. It was awesome. So Nuggets fans, if you haven't tuned in, make sure to tune in on Friday, 1 p.m. on ESPN Plus, but you can probably find other illegal streams, no doubt about it. Serbia will play the Netherlands. Should be a lot of fun to watch. Jokic, anytime he plays, it's just one of those things that you got to see. But it's definitely scratching the itch for anybody that, like me, has been missing basketball a little bit. Get into August, get into September, and you're really just itching for the NBA season to start. You don't need to wait. You can get some NBA caliber talent right now. It's a lot of fun. We'll see if Serbia can win. But even if they don't, they're going to be very competitive, I have no doubt. Let's take another break. 
When we come back, we are going to wrap up this conversation with a Michael Porter Jr. hype session. We'll be right back. Back at it, final segment, pickaxe and roll. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in here. If you haven't already seen it, I've been posting my 20Q series on Mile High Sports. It's basically 20 preview questions for the Denver Nuggets over the course of these four weekdays. uh, Four weeks, one each weekday, basically. And some of the questions I've already asked and, and answered with the article format. Is Nikola Jokic, could he win a third MVP? Who's going to play in this Nuggets rotation? How likely is it that Jamal Murray returns to Jamal Murray levels? And what does Michael Porter Jr. look like when he comes back? I, I talked about all of these in my last four articles. And I talked about Michael Porter Jr. in the Thursday article. And when I was doing some research for the MPJ article, Came across the came across the points per game splits by month during the 2020-21 season. In December, he played four games, averaged 19.5 points per game. January, six games, 14.7 points. February, 13 games, 12.5 points. It was in a lull at that point. March, 14 games, 20.3. April, 16 games, 23.9. May, 8 games, 21.0. Michael Porter Jr. was in his bag for the last half of the season. The final 38 games that he played in March, April, and May, he was playing at the level of a top 30 scorer. It was awesome to see. And he was really starting to blossom in a big way, where he knew that he had the talent to do it. It was very clear that he figured some things out, kind of in the second half of February. He had that really awful game against the Boston Celtics that year, went on the road, 0 of 9 from the field, basically, and was just horrible. But it was kind of a watershed moment, where Michael Malone had been pressing really hard when talking to him, when trying to get him to do the right things. Let off the gas a little bit, had MPJ kind of get back to some of the basics. And that mental reset, I think, really helped him. He averaged 21.9 points per game during those 38 games uh, after February ended. 56.6% from the field, 46.8% from three, and 80.4% from the line. His scoring, at least among his peers at the small forward position, and especially at his age, It's just extremely underrated. It's very rare for a player that's his size with his profile to get to that level. You just see it with stars most of the time. It's very unlikely that second-year players don't pan out when they play the way that he did. He was adding layers to his game, running off of screens, DHOs, cuts, On top of being an elite spot-up guy, an offensive rebounding threat due to his size, he was figuring out his role within the Nuggets offense. And though the playoffs were a wake-up call that he hadn't arrived yet, he really did struggle 
in about in half of the games against the Blazers and then all of the games against the Suns. They were a wake-up call, but they weren't damning. It wasn't like he wouldn't ever figure some stuff out from those series. It was always going to be a growth curve, a learning curve. He still has a ways to go in his progression, understanding what teams are going to try to do to him and then countering that or setting something up where he could get to his spots anyway. He still has a ways to go, and that should excite Nuggets fans. They know what he did when he was basically just a baby deer. Now, you give him some veteran time, some extra games of experience, and just watch and see what his defense and his playmaking can do. They showed some signs of growth at the beginning of last season. It was hard to figure out. Don't get me wrong. And it was very difficult to see through the horrible shooting that was going on. Horrible decision making with the the shooting that was going on. He was also clearly hampered by injury, so I don't want to slam him too bad. But the defense and playmaking was improved. I do believe that. And if those flashes end up being more than just flashes, he still has potential to be more well-rounded than I think he's viewed as right now. Right now, his perception, like that's the, the key thing with him, is he's viewed as this talented gunner. People know about the scoring. They believe that he's going to shoot well. But they also believe that he can't defend a lick, that he doesn't want to pass to people, that he has himself and only himself in mind. I think, like, like, look, maybe that never changes. Maybe that perception of him is always going to be like that. But I just believe in Porter's work ethic at improving towards those aspects of his game. I think he's going to be a better defender as he grows up. I think he's going to be a better defender and a passer as he grows up and just learns stuff. That's what happens when you play with Nikola Jokic, is you learn, you get better. The biggest question, of course, it's always going to be health. Anybody that says that they know what his future is going to look like health-wise, I think they'd be lying. He is so much of kind of an ambiguous person, or injury case, that people don't like, they, they can say they believe he's not going to be healthy. They can say they, they wouldn't take him or, or touch him with a 10-foot pole if they were trying to add him to their team next season or going forward. I understand that. I understand the hesitance. It very well could end up that way. But there is no reason to believe that he can't play going forward either. The evidence with back injuries in the NBA, it's so ambiguous and it's so much less. There's less of it. There's fewer injuries in history that are very comparable to Michael Porter's situation than there are torn ACLs. It's one of the reasons why I was able to evaluate what Jamal Murray was going through as well as kind of pick out some other guys that had gone through similar situations and I could like definitely prepare and figure out, okay, I can project he's probably going to be fine. He's probably going to average about the same number of points, rebounds, and assists that when he left. It's just how this thing works. With Michael Porter, I don't know. I think the Nuggets are going to be cautious, but I also think that he could just be healthy next season. He could also be on the sidelines again. He could never play again if his back starts to flare up in preseason. 
That would suck. It's possible, though. It's also why Denver has to be cautious, even when he says he's playing good. Even when he, he or feels like he's, he's good. Even when he's really starting to get it, where he wants to be let off the leash a little bit. If they've been playing him 25 to 30 minutes a game, Michael Porter's going to want to play 30 to 35 minutes a game, 35 plus minutes a game. He's competitive. He wants to be out there. He wants to prove himself. And he's not going to be happy unless he does. But that's why the Nuggets have to play it cautious. But they also need to see meaningful development. They need to see change. They need to see evolution with him. If they want him to be the best player that he can be. Michael Malone is an I believe it when I see it kind of coach. He does his rotations that way. He does his hierarchies and his depth charts that way. And the number of shots that guys get and the number of plays that are run for certain people. Malone is going to do his best, I think, to get through to MPJ. MPJ is going to have to meet him halfway on a lot of different things, including giving good, solid effort on defense, but also have a good, solid understanding on that end, too. Bruce Brown, good safety net in some lineups. Definitely going to be an option that Michael Malone goes to, especially if Porter doesn't really figure it out. But what happens if the Clippers come to town and if they're in a playoff series Michael Malone doesn't trust Michael Porter. And then you've got Bruce Brown starting at some point. Who does he guard? Does he guard Paul George? Does KCP guard Paul George? And Kawhi gets, uh, like Aaron Gordon gets the Kawhi assignment? Paul George could go off in those situations. He might not. But it would be nice to have another tall, athletic body in Michael Porter. To be able to switch, to be able to competently contest some of those shots in a way that a six foot four guy just really can't. What happens if the Grizzlies, if the Nuggets can't get stops on the Grizzly for the Grizzlies, if the Mavericks come to town or the Warriors come to town or the Suns come to town, and the Nuggets just can't get stops in those series, even if Michael Porter's off the floor? The Nuggets are going to need to outscore those teams. And the best way to do that is to have Michael Porter on the floor. I don't think there's any question about that. That if you're trying to be the best offense you can be, Michael Porter is going to be out there. For Denver to be the best version of itself, Michael Porter has to find a level of comfort and confidence within this offense. It's something the Nuggets will need to also find with him in order to trust him fully. Nikola Jokic is that way. Jamal Murray is that way. Michael Malone especially is that way. It's a two-way street. They can't just give him the opportunities. He has to earn them, and he has to retain that trust. Buying in and trying on defense, moving off ball, moving the ball too, that's also going to be important. He averaged one assist in 2020-21. Uh, in He needs to pass the ball more. The ball can't just die with him, despite the fact that he's so talented that he doesn't need to pass. For the Nuggets to run their best version of offense, he's going to have to 
create for others too. You don't want him to be a full-on secondary playmaker. Nobody's asking that. But he also has to have one eye on the basket and one eye on the rest of the floor. It can't just be both eyes on the basket all the time. Getting him consistent touches in the flow of Denver's offense is also going to be important. But MPJ needs to understand the flow in order to get those touches too. One of the things that I had an issue with at the beginning of 2020-21, when he was in the starting lineup, but especially when he was kind of going through that slump and not really knowing what he was supposed to do, there were too many times where those flow possessions ended up with Barton getting a shot, or Millsap getting a shot, or P.J. Dozier or Faku or Jamichael Green getting a shot, and not MPJ. Sometimes it wasn't even MPJ's fault. His job was to stay in the corner in some of those possessions. That can't be his only job going forward. He has to remain remain involved, and the best way for him to understand the offense is to be a part of it, is to be integral to it, so the Nuggets can build some stuff around him too, not just around Jokic, not just around Jokic and Murray. If this is going to be the best version of the Nuggets, it's going to incorporate elements from all of these guys. You're going to need to get some isolation and post-up touches for MPJ. That's just how you need to do it. 15 feet, mid-post, get him the ball at some points when he's got a six foot four dude on him and have him turn face up and either shoot on somebody or pump fake and create some offense using his size. There are so many opportunities to get him more involved. And it's not just calling plays for him, but it's just having him be in positions within the flow of the offense where he's running the split actions, where he's running the pistol actions. He's involved in those, not necessarily just as the spacing option on the other side. Jokic is responsible for that more so than anybody. Murray will also have to do a good job, and maybe that'll be better this upcoming season as everybody kind of understands their roles and it's pretty easy to figure out the pecking order. Murray is going to call a lot of plays He's because he slows the ball down a little bit. Jokic will be the first option. Murray will be the second option. Porter will be the third option. It's pretty clear. When Murray doesn't play and Porter does, he'll be the second option. That's pretty clear. Denver's got to treat it like that. If they don't treat it like that, then I think that's wrong. But the good news is that Porter's talented enough to deserve it. The shots that he was hitting were absurd. Some of the looks that he was putting up there, even when Murray was gone and out, were insane. But he was running around screens. There was one clip that I posted in the article where he's curling around a baseline screen set by Jokic. Bruce Brown is the one that's chasing him. And Bruce Brown gets stuck on a Jokic screen MPJ, despite the fact that it doesn't look like he's moving that fast, his legs and his limbs are so long that he covers so much ground, gets to the perimeter, pump fakes, gets Bruce Brown off of his feet, and hits a step back go step back three wide open going to his left. It was awesome. That's one of those reps that you look at and think, man, that's unbeatable. And we can get to that shot pretty consistently if we just call these plays. I'm predicting a bounce-back year. 
It may be around the same numbers that he had before, whether it's like 18 to 19 points, or maybe he's up over 20. But I'm predicting about the same points, more confidence and cohesion, more assists. He's going to have to be up over two. That would be my goal is to add another assist per game. Look for your teammates that way, and then they'll look for you. That's the way that he can be involved in Denver's system and thrive. If he passes to Jokic, if he passes to Murray, and there are plays that are designed for him to do that, it's going to be great. He'll also have some opportunities with Aaron Gordon around the basket and KCP in the opposite corner. There will be plenty of opportunities for him to create offense for others and leverage his shooting in order to do that. But he's got to buy in, and I believe that he will. He wants to win. He wants to be great. This is the way for him to do both. I think he can do it. That is going to do it for this episode of Pickaxe and Roll, brought to you by Superbook Sports. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. This was a good episode. I really enjoyed this one. This was a lot of fun. I'm going to be back over the weekend. Serbia will play two games in between when this podcast releases and when I record the next one. So it should be a lot to talk about on that front. Maybe we'll get some more Nuggets news at some point. Should be fun. Maybe I'll even share my fantasy draft results. I know you're all dying to hear. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. We'll talk to you guys next week. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.